I chase microphones for a living. I say that with tongue in cheek, but I do speak at conferences. I contribute to conversation and media, my podcast, my LinkedIn page. And I can tell you that wherever I am, people are battling a relentless storm of negativity and a growing sense of impossibility. And I can't deny the reasons now, why. as a new strain of coronavirus spreads across the world. Another indiscriminate attack on Ukrainian civilians while they slept. Environmental experts have called it a massive wake-up call to governments to cut emissions. Politics, war, pandemic, climate change, the West versus the East, left versus right, and our daily reminders every time we buy groceries, fill our tank, or wonder where mortgage rates are going. Add to that the slant of mass media and the trolls that troll social media. It's easy to see our glass half empty or even being drained in front of our eyes. But I'm an optimist. And I believe that this negativity and this growing sense of impossibility is going to unleash a lightning storm of powerful ideas. Ideas that will bring possibility back to our lives, our communities, and the planet. We designed a, a virtual palliative care app. Artificial intelligence, we bring in neurotechnology to increase cognitive ability and academic performance. We see innovation and digitalization as delivering fairness to producers and working towards a more equitable world. This trajectory of decline to recovery and finally making peace with nature. Humans are capable of almost anything. We put our minds to creating big ideas and action upon them. The question is how? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Well, joining me today is a very special guest. Her name is Sarah Stein Greenberg. Sarah is the executive director of Stanford's D School and has written a brilliant book called Creative Acts for Curious People. Sarah is an approach for putting our minds to work to create ideas and design solutions to solve our planet's problems and the problems we encounter at work or in our life. She even has a bold approach to change how we learn to learn. Sarah Stein Greenberg, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much, Tony. It's great to be here. I've listened to so many of your interviews and read several articles you feature in. Your passion's contagious, you're playful, you're just, your eyes shine when you talk about what you're doing to help solve problems, big and small. So let's begin with this passion. Where did your love for ideation and design-based solutions come from? You know, I think it really starts with how I was raised and the household that I grew up in. Um, my dad uh, is an incredibly gifted uh, tinkerer and builder and fix-it person um, and a photographer. He has like so many different uh, uh, trades and crafts. And one thing that I think was really apparent to me as a kid was like, you can fix all the stuff in your house if you learn how to do it. Right. Like you don't actually have to call lots of different people if you have a book or the ability to do a little research and like a little bit of confidence that, you know, you're not going to break it right away. And I just saw that demonstrated over and over. And I think that was a really important uh, like part of the context that I that I grew up in. Let me just let me just break in for a sec, because when your dad was doing that, there wasn't the Internet. There wasn't necessarily Google. So how did he apply himself? He just decided to break things apart and find a way to put them back together again. 
I, I, a combination of that and also being an autodidact. So he had lots of old books that were like, you know, the sort of seminal kind of like how do, how do things work kinds of books and lots of books on photography and plumbing and electrical work. And he really could fix just about anything in the house. And, you know, so I was both seeing, oh, there's reference materials out there and the value of getting hands on, taking things apart, remembering how you took them apart, right? <laughs> documenting that process and and then, you know, rebuilding them to, to work better. And it's, it's really actually quite powerful when kids see a parent exhibit that kind of behavior. It is quite an empowering stance towards the world around you. And I think that was really quite important for me growing up to, to have that model and have that example. Did he invite you in and hand the screwdriver to you or was it more you just... I mean, there are really funny photos of me as like a much too young child, like by today's standards, you know, where parents are like overly cautious of like, you know, holding a wrench or a screwdriver or a hammer, um, you know, sort of being the helper while he was fixing something. Um, and he also, uh, he baked all of our bread when I was a kid. And so like being again, the, you know, like taking a little piece of the dough and kneading it and helping out and seeing how things worked. He was super encouraging along those fronts. And how important was it for you to see the desired outcome that you're not just involved in a, an event? Because I think today, a lot of times we push things up in the cloud. We never have any tactile evidence of what we're doing for you to, at the end, taste that piece of bread or see the, the cart work again. Absolutely. I mean, I feel quite fortunate to have grown up in the 80s and 90s when, oh, and the, the other thing my parents did that was probably really helpful, even though it really drove me crazy at the time, was like, we didn't watch a lot of TV in my house. So the things to do to occupy yourself were like reading or making things. And I do think that there's something really valuable about the tangible expression of an idea in some kind of physical form that you can see and hold on to or, or taste and, and enjoy later, something that endures. So for me, that was an important part of my growing up. You know, today kids work in all kinds of digital mediums. And I think that is another really valid and important type of making. But just, you know, in my personal background, that the analog, the physical materials, whether it was Legos or bread dough, were, were just really critical for me. What were you like going to school? Because I can't see you as someone that would just sit still. You must have been hopping around the class a little bit? Or do you have teachers that really encourage you to kind of bring this into the classroom? I mean, I was fortunate to go to a school that really believed in learning in different modes. And so rarely would I have a day, especially as a, as a younger student, where you were just sitting in a chair the whole day. And so the, the ability to, you know, whether it was to do an arts and crafts project or to sit down in a reading circle or to work on, a, you know, on some kind of math concept, um, you know, together with other students, uh, like there were many different ways of learning that were embraced. And I think that is really fundamentally important, both to how I think about learning and also just for, for myself as a learner to have those different types of opportunities. So we're going to have to fast track a little bit because there's so much I want to get across. MBA from Stanford University, a BA in history from Oberlin College. And you start your career in consulting. So is that was a natural path. You get an MBA at Stanford and every consulting company in the world wants you to uh, join them. You know, I was really interested in consulting because I was um, very aware that I didn't have a lot of private sector experience at that point. So I'd gone to business school because I wanted to have a professional kind of growth experience that was very different than my previous background, which was all uh, public service, nonprofit kind of work uh, in, in healthcare. And I, 
I was interested in the model that happens in consulting where you get to learn really quickly because you're always working on different projects. And, and that was as much the gravitational pull for me as anything else at that stage in my career. So you're working at Monitor, you know, I think that was Michael Porter's original vision. But consulting to me, it takes away a little bit of that desired outcome. I mean, you, you provide a process, you provide a pathway, but you never really see it bear fruit. Was that okay with you? Because you're the, the, the kid that loved to see the taste of bread after she made it. Was there ever an issue with you that you just said, I'm, I'm kind of contributing to it, but not part of it? For sure. I mean, I really was there to have a learning experience and to contribute to what I could. But I was pretty clear eyed at that time that it was going to be a stage in my career and probably not my whole career. I have a lot of respect for the you know folks in my life who have gone that you know path, like you know consulting uh, all the way you know through to partner. But for me, I was pretty specific that I wanted it to be a, a kind of the next step, but not the not the final step. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. Presented by RBC. Been going through some challenging, difficult times um, all together, all over the world. And um, for me, one of the important aspects of that reality is that, you know, thinking and creating and decision making, it looks really different when the world is as uncertain as it is today. The, the pandemic has challenged so many norms in how we organize our families and how we organize our schools and how we think about work and how we think about community. And we have had to challenge ourselves to adapt during this time. My special guest, Sarah Stein Greenberg. Sarah, you returned to Stanford in 2010 and become the managing director of Stanford D School and in 2014 to become the executive director. So first, what is the D School? The D-School is a really unconventional place at Stanford. We are an institute that serves many, many different types of students. So Stanford has seven different schools all on one campus. So already there's this incredibly fertile mix of different ways of thinking, different ways of doing. And the D-School, uh, which was founded in 2004, is a place where all of those different kinds of students and faculty can come together to work on open-ended, creative problems and opportunities. And we offer a series of classes every year, both for uh, students who want to take electives or students who want to get a major or a, a degree in design. And we practice a particular type of design that is not just about the aesthetics or the kind of finishing touches on a, on a logo or a, or a product, but a much more kind of comprehensive and integrative version of design. So we, we've learned from how designers have always worked, the process that they use, the intention with which they approach their work, and the students that, that we're teaching now get to apply those tools and those skills to problems that range from challenges in the education system to the healthcare system to, you know, entrepreneurial ventures, really just about anything that you can think of. Yeah, I mean, you've been there since 2010. You're now the executive director and you're so passionate about what this school is doing. I'd love to know personally from you, what is on your highlight reel? The time that you're there, because I've been pouring through all the, the many articles and stuff that feature you, but what would you say if you look back and said, a job well done, I, I was part of an idea or a design process, changed the world? Well, the first thing I'll say is that I see my role as being the person who is helping to set the conditions 
for many other people's creative abilities to emerge. So there are so many exciting and meaningful student projects, faculty projects, team projects that have come out of the D School over the years. I have played a small role in, in most of them. Um, in, in terms of holding that container, setting those conditions. And I, I will say that I think that's an important idea for leaders in lots of different contexts to, to think about what are you doing to set those conditions for your team that, that allows their creative abilities to emerge. And then a few of the particular ways um, that we've gone about doing that that I'm really proud of. One came kind of early on in my tenure where I was interested in thinking about, you know, for most people, they might teach one class once a year. A yearly cycle is actually like a really long time to go between the time when you get feedback about how well it's gone, which is, you know, from your students, you see the quality of their work, you get their evaluations to the following cycle when you're going to go then redesign it or improve it for the next year. And so I was interested in figuring out, well, we're, we're really strong believers in small experiments, which can teach you so much about what the how to improve the thing you're working on. How do we do that as educators? So we created something called pop-up classes, which were meant to be really short format classes, not as serious as the kind of full, you know, semester, quarter-long classes that we typically teach. And that actually really unleashed a whole lot of experimentation and innovation within our teaching community. And then, of course, we learned, well, it has some other challenges and we're going to continue to improve it. And we, you know, continue to iterate on that model over time. But for me, that initial spark of like, how do we create a test bed, a, a real vehicle for experimentation in a sector where there's not actually enough room for that in education in general? That's something that I'm I'm really proud of. And the second thing I'll mention, just in terms of a project whose outcomes I I think continue to have ripple effects even today was a project that we did, which was a, a visioning project to think about what could the undergraduate experience at Stanford look like in 15 years? And our team came up with really cool ideas around thinking about learning over your whole lifetime, not just in early adulthood, which is when you know the college degree is typically pursued, thinking about how to build more intrinsic motivation into a college experience, um, thinking about what if you declared a mission instead of a major, right, or some of both. Um, so, so some of those ideas, you know, continue to resonate today. Um, and I, I'm really, really proud of the work that that team did. Do you ever get frustrated with, because some of the, what you're saying is the blinding obvious. I love mission instead of a major. You know, I'm on a quest as opposed to uh, just to pick up my flag. Very often change when it hits the status quo, there's an incredible pushback. The biases are such, I don't even want to hear it. I don't care about your science. I don't care about your results. How do you find a way to stay positive knowing that change is tough and not always embraced with open arms? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've learned again and again is that people fear change because it's not as tangible as the status quo. So even if you don't love every aspect of the status quo, you're living it, you can appreciate it, you can understand how to navigate it. It's more certain than something that is the, you know, what the future could look like, might look like. And just that uncertainty creates this chilling effect for folks. So what I think I've really come to depend on from our, our own design methods is having a bias toward action where you try things before you know exactly how they're going to turn out and you give people a comparison set, right? You might try several small experiments 
that allow people to at least have something to compare what could be with what already is. And, and making things tangible, making an abstract idea into something you can experience or you can feel is a key part of how we think about design at the D School. So in a Fortune article, because I want to build on what you just said, you said that the world would keep challenges in ways most people never expected or, or trained for. And it's not just at home or work, it's every facet of life, education, technology, climate, politics, community, and more. What do we do with all this ambiguity and complexity? We absolutely must get better and faster at learning how to solve new kinds of challenges collectively and, and as individuals. So when you're talking about these little steps and the experiments and having people you know, digest snackable change so that they have an appetite for more, is that not contrary to having to do things faster or is that actually the best way to get it, bring about results at a, at a pace that the, what the world is going to demand we, we change at? So I think there's a way in which that what we call rapid prototyping and testing actually helps you continue to move forward as things are changing, as there's a lot of pressure to, to you know, make improvements, but in a way that also creates those opportunities for real reflection and seeing what works before you overcommit to a new solution that you're really unsure about. So rapid prototyping is just the philosophy that like you should try something, you should test it out, right? Instead of teaching a semester long class, you should teach a one week version of that class and actually see how students react to it before you invest all that time and energy. In a corporate context, it's often around building a small, partially working model of a product or a service or an experience before you invest the full product development cycle into it and get really you know, live feedback from the people who might use this product or service. A lot of people think about that as one of the ways you can de-risk creating something that's new, right? It's way better to learn early on that the thing is not going to work or has some major problems than right after you launch it, right? So I think that there's a there's a tension built in in terms of the all the pressure to like make, you know, make new solutions, come up with new ways of operating and do it on a fast pace and the fact that normally we think about what that has to look like as come up with the finished perfect solution right now, right away. And that just actually creates an unbearable amount of pressure on people. And, and that kind of pressure actually leads you to make worse decisions. So this practice around saying like, okay, I recognize we need to move fast. Let's do some very quick, very low resolution prototypes to test out the things that we're thinking about. That gives us real data and real feedback. And then we're going to be able to make better decisions. I remember when video games were just coming up for my daughters and by age five or six, they would occasionally invite me in, but I just had no currency or credibility. So for the parents that are out there trying to be foster creativity and curiosity like your father did with you, what advice can you give parents knowing that they're competing with Fortnite and Minecraft and some of the most wildest storytelling that's out there? What can we do around the family table? One parent actually recently shared with me that he did one of the uh, assignments in the book, which is called the Derive, with his family. It's a simple activity in which you basically take a walk around your neighborhood or your town, wherever you live. Then they came back and they had this profound conversation about everything they noticed in their neighborhood that they hadn't been noticing before. And even, I think, leading to a conversation about attention, right? And, and how to invest meaningfully in those kinds of experiences that, that could be more uniform. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. When we return, Sarah Stein Greenberg will talk about how their approach to ideation and the design process can work to tackle every facet of life. And we'll begin to talk about education. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. Given that we're living through these times where we don't have a clear roadmap, that was also the experience that I had, you know, of writing this book. I will say I found a tremendous amount of joy and inspiration in working with these ideas. My hope is that people all over the world really find as much meaning and utility in experiencing and trying out these same assignments as I have in writing about them. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, Presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Sarah Stein Greenberg has published an excellent book called Creative Acts for Curious People. Let's apply some of your approach to some of the world's biggest problems. How's that? I'm just going to interview you in my podcast and I want to, well, you're going to save the world. I'm going to interview you on it. I am so love what you talk about with education and teaching people a new way to learn to learn, the pop-up classrooms and stuff. Take us into elementary school and high school because I'm seeing a lot of kids checking out. I mean, they're TikTok, they're video gaming, That's they're immersed in that kind of content but when it comes to the classroom environment it just doesn't have the same appetite or zest is that fair you know i i have to say i i hear a lot of the same things from my you know friends or or colleagues who have kids in school today and i i know that the last couple of years has been particularly difficult um and i think having that meaningful connection with the learning community that you're in is is that much harder when you're doing it all remotely a colleague of mine described the moment that we're in, in terms of interacting with students, young and old, as being like, it's a fight for the attention economy. People's attention is just so fragmented and it's incredibly competitive and increasingly competitive to just get people to to register what's going on. One of the things that I've seen design do that just seems to light people up is that it puts a lot of agency in the hands of the learner. So when I'm framing a challenge for students in a class, We're often working with a real world partner who comes to the students and says, hey, I have this interesting context that I'm working on. It's in a healthcare context. It's in a a school. So for example, we had a a course taught by an incredible designer named Jules Sherman that was focused on neonatal design. So there are so many things that are challenging when a family has an early, a premature baby, right? There can be feeding issues. There can be birth weight issues. There's lots of medical issues that come about. But there's also really important changes that can be made in the role of the parents and how the parents and the physicians are communicating. And so our students in that particular class got to go and watch a lot of simulations within in the medical school. They got to interview and do home visits and spend a lot of time with families of infants who are having some of these health challenges. And all of a sudden you see those students really start to gravitate towards the real human needs that the people who are in this ecosystem are having. And that creates something that that some researchers have termed pro-social motivation. That empathy that people can have for the needs of others creates a real sense of urgency of wanting to solve that problem. So we were talking about intrinsic motivation a minute ago, right? That's one of those things that can help you decide, 
I'm going to commit to this kind of learning. I want to be equipped to solve this kind of problem or that kind of problem. And I've heard of teachers applying this, you know, as, as early as the, the earliest grades. So a, another teacher, um, who actually became a fellow at the D school named Melissa Pellicino years ago, she was a reading specialist and she worked with kids who were reading far below their grade level. And one of the things that she did is she adopted some of the, those design principles and she had her students read a book about bullying. And then she turned it into a design challenge. All of a sudden the students were using the examples in the book and the stories in the book to, to find those needs to frame a, a challenge that they wanted to then solve at their own school. So I want to now move from education to what I understand is your new passion is scuba diving. And I had Dr. Sylvia Erlon, who's Time Magazine's first hero of the planet. And if, I'm sure you've heard of her, but she's, she's dedicated her entire life to protecting our oceans and all inhabit them. Talk to us about how your approach can work on probably the thing that's on everybody's mind, which is climate change. Well, one, I mean, Sylvia Earle is a hero of, of anyone who cares about the oceans. Um, what an extraordinary inspiration. This is a topic that I'm personally so passionate about. And uh, one of the things that I do outside of the D school, in addition to being an avid diver, is I am on the board of a conservation organization called Rare. And Rare works with coastal communities around the world on exactly some of these issues. As coastal communities that have historically relied on small scale fishing are being disproportionately affected by climate change, the overfishing is getting worse and worse because there are fewer fish. One of the core principles that we think about in, in design is what are the needs of not just the, the ecosystem, the natural ecosystem in that case, but also of the human beings who are the stewards and the who have the primary relationship with that particular natural ecosystem. And so Rare has developed an approach actually called behavior-centered design, which is really thinking about how do we take all of those needs into consideration at once that works on um, helping local communities have the ownership to steward those natural resources themselves. And that involves a whole lot of design, a whole lot of science and work on the particular needs of that, of that one ecosystem. But what I really like about that is that it does not pit nature and humans against each other. It looks at that integrated system and thinks about how do we design for all of those different pieces of that puzzle. So that's an example that I would definitely recommend people check out if you're, if you're interested in thinking about in the face of climate change, how do we make meaningful progress on, in this case, an oceans related issue that is that affects really all of us? And I'll also say that, you know, one of the things I'm excited about at Stanford is that there is a new school um, that is all around sustainability. And it's as far as I know, it's the first time Stanford has had a school that is dedicated to really addressing a set of challenges, as well as doing the basic research and, and science that underpin that. At the D School, we are really excited to begin some partnerships uh, with various faculty within that school. How does the faculty relate to you? Because you're going to be coming in with new ideas for teaching, new ideas for sharing content. Sometimes influence without authority is welcome with open arms because you're bringing value added, but you're not trying to tell me how to do things. But other times it's easily rejected because you don't really have authority. Well, the real answer is that we started very small and we welcomed anybody who wanted to come, but we did not require anyone to be there. So all of the faculty who helped start the D school and all of the students who took the earliest classes of which I was very lucky to be one, we were all there by choice. 
I think that that was materially important to our founding stages because the people who were there were, you know, had a disposition towards experimentation and towards embracing this new way of working. Then as we've gotten bigger and, and as you say, more influential, we have a track record. We can show, oh, if you teach a class this way, here are some of the results that you can get. Or if you apply this particular type of process, you can unlock a new type of thinking. And so now we're at a stage where I'm really proud that we're often invited in to you know, help design various projects or collaborate with different faculty on their service efforts or research efforts. And I, I can see that, you know, 15 years later, we're, we're in the room in a way that we, we certainly weren't at our founding. And I also want to say this is not just true at the D school. This is a phenomenon that's happening in many organizations uh, worldwide in, in terms of how design is playing a bigger and bigger role. All of a sudden, there's a new C-level officer in many companies, which is a chief design officer that's at the highest strategic level in, in many companies, uh, heads of innovation and heads of design within public sector institutions as well. Design, I think, is just increasingly being seen as this very flexible, human-centered, systems-aware way of navigating through these uncomfortable, messy, sometimes very chaotic challenges that, that we're facing across so many different fields. When we're invited in, I think is when we can we can really help support. So I want to talk about a smaller problem, but one that's a massive problem for a lot of young people nowadays, and that's affordability when it comes to housing. And you mentioned that uh, Alex Lofton, who has an idea to make it easier for young people to afford a house. So Alex was a just spectacular D school student now many years ago. And he was, at the time he was enrolled at the business school. Um, he took a class that I was teaching along with some other colleagues uh, called Design Thinking for Public Policy Innovators. Alex really walked away from that class with, um, I think, a, a solid foundation for thinking as a designer. And so a few years later, he got together with a group of his friends. And at the time, he, you know, like many other sort of recent graduates, was really struggling to figure out, like, how am I ever going to afford a house in the Bay Area? So they originally had this idea almost like a Kickstarter for buying a home. Like, what if I could create a platform where all of my friends and family could help contribute a piece of the down payment and then I would be able to, you know, actually afford the house. And for a variety of regulatory reasons, that did not pan out. But also, interestingly enough, as they started prototyping their idea, it brought up all of these complications around the human dynamics of like sharing a property or like it's very interesting feedback. So they kept iterating and they kept, they, they, they knew they, they were onto something important. Where they ultimately landed is a company that is called Landed and they work with large institutions. They help secure down payment financing. And then they also, as a company, contribute to a down payment. They specifically work with frontline workers and um, in healthcare and educators who are being totally priced out of expensive housing markets. And they're now actually working in many markets around the US. And their their work is really, really impactful for first time home buyers who would not normally be able to um, necessarily navigate that process to see themselves as homeowners, but also to actually be able to afford that first down payment. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Really is an attempt to embody the, not just the ideas and the methods that we use at the D School, but also it's like a field guide. It's a methods book. It has a little philosophy about creativity in there. It's a, it's a mixture of things. 
My guest is the brilliant and passionate Sarah Stein Greenberg. Let's talk about your book, Creative Acts for Curious People. First of all, it is the most creative book. It is so much fun to go through. You could just pop in and pop out. You know, give me the elevator pitch so I can get listeners to just go to their favorite bookstore and buy a copy. There are so many challenges that every single one of us face these days that we were not directly trained for. And it is a moment where we have to reach into some other toolkit that we don't necessarily yet have and, and find some more perhaps unconventional methods to help open our minds, to see what's around us in new ways. And then as we've been talking about, to like build and test those ideas so that other people can, can give us feedback and help us improve them. So in this book are 81 assignments that we have developed or teach at the D school. They come from over a hundred different faculty and instructors. They are um, really this enormous range. So if you're looking for ways to tune up your own personal creative abilities and to and to reflect on how you uh, how you do that, there's some wonderful assignments for you. If you are um, you know really wanting to work on your your skills around creating things in a more tangible form, like actually building and making, there are assignments uh, along those lines as well. So my hope is that it will appeal to you no matter if you're early on your creative journey, if you're, you know, have tons of creative confidence, but you're looking for some new inspiration. They're so clever. I mean, things like the secret handshake and the the banana challenge. Do you have any personal favorites that you kind of go, that's one of my go-to things when I'm trying to bring people together and get them to open their minds about possibility? Well, I do have one that I personally contributed, which is literally called my favorite warm-up sequence because it is in fact my favorite warm-up sequence. Oftentimes when we're pulling a group together or a class in a workshop at a conference, you have to accelerate the process by which people can form quickly form a connection so that they can get to a place of trust. So my favorite way to, to get groups to do this is to go through a series of short warmups. The first one is you pair people up and you have each of them tell the story of their name. Where'd you get your name? Tell me a little bit about it. And I would, I would do the same back and forth. The second one is that you have those two people who just formed a little tiny bond pair up with two more people in the group. You have them talk about um, what are the skills that they would bring to that foursome if the zombie apocalypse was upon us, right? So really playful, totally absurd. But what that one does is it gets people talking about what they care about and are good at and spend time on outside of their work, right? Oftentimes in professional groups, people come together and the only thing you learn is their title. But this is another way to start to just build a little bit more rapport. So let's talk a little bit about your shy, uh, introverted. One of my upcoming guests is Susan Kane, who wrote Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And she talks about how very often introverts just want to go away and solve a problem. Some of the biggest problems in the world has been, are being solved that way versus having to kind of play act that they're extroverts. They're the ones that are in, they're raw, raw and having this whole, you know, brainstorming session. What do you offer for introverts within that book that they, besides the one you just talked about, where they feel that they have an equal seat at the table, even though they, their voice might not be as loud? Brainstorming is kind of the best known form of ideation, but there are many techniques that can be used that are that are about coming to the table, coming to a brainstorm, already having come up with a personal list that then you contribute in, in various ways. One example um, in the book that I love because it is a nice interplay between a group process and an individual or a, or a paired process is called by association. If you've had a bunch of people generate different ideas, 
you then have pairs break off. They take a pile of those ideas and they try to force an association between any two of them. And it just gets you to create sort of like, okay, what's the connection between these two totally different ideas? Let's come up with a third idea that unifies them. And because it's in, it's it's employing some randomness, it, it, you like, can't take it too seriously. And again, because it's like a little bit of a respite from that larger group dynamic, it allows for every single voice to, to be heard in the group and to contribute in a particular way. So I think of the, the kinds of processes that you need to develop as, oh, you're always toggling. You're going big group, then you're going small group or individual. You're going abstract, and then you're going tangible and concrete. And the better that you can get at figuring out do we, do we need to, for example, do we need to flare? Do we need more ideas or do we need to focus? Do we need to converge on a few ideas right now? Toggling between those different modes and understanding why they're important to your process at what moment, that is a hugely important part of, of leadership in any kind of a design or creative context. One of the other quotes I loved, and you talk about, let's be learners, let's be designers, let's inherit the future and do everything we can to shape it for the better. You're making it at a time where People just don't feel there's much of a future. What advice can you give to my listeners to let them know that we do have such incredible potential with the human beings that a lot of the problems that feel insurmountable, we can find our way? Let's be learners is really my philosophy about how we're going to navigate this very, very difficult moment that we're in. We do not have all of the answers that we need. We do not have the, all the solutions to the kinds of challenges that you were just describing. So we have to be willing to say, I don't know. I don't know exactly where this project is going to take us. I don't know exactly what this school year is going to look like. That requires a very different posture and orientation, particularly if you're in any kind of a leadership role, or even if you're just the head of your household, right? To be able to, to honestly say, I don't know exactly where this is going to go, but we have a process. We have a way to, to rapidly learn about what the needs are right now, whether they're those human needs in the, you know, ICU after a, after a baby is born, or whether it's in a classroom, or whether it's in your own family. And that's where I think design can be so powerful is that it gives you a way to routinely learn about a challenge or a situation that you have not yet prepared for, that you are not yet expert in. That inner confidence that you have a way to move forward, even if you don't know the exact destination, I think is extremely important right now. I'll just share on a personal note, you know, you brought up my, my passion for the oceans and for diving. I, I find personally real respite in nature. And I think that, you know, the awareness of like, what do you do to recharge? What do you do to, to fill up that tank is, uh, again, it's really, really important. And the, and the other thing I'll say is that I, I often find that people, when they are feeling overwhelmed and really stuck, it's because they're, they're reading the news, they're looking at things only at a global level. And when that's happening, I strongly encourage you to look at a hyper local level. What is happening in your neighborhood that you could help improve? What is happening in your home that you could help improve or your, your apartment building? And thinking about those small wins, right? Those, those abilities that you have to make a contribution and make an impact and make change in really local ways, I think can, can one, demystify your own process, your own creative process, right? And also it's that it, you build those, those small wins and then that helps you be ready to tackle those bigger, longer term, more ambiguous challenges. So I, I feel strongly that, you know, in a moment like this, 
looking locally, looking to something that you really care about, and also finding those moments to recharge are just really vital for all of us. So Sarah Stein-Greenberg, I always end with the three things that I take away. The first one that I really liked is set the conditions for success, whether that's a leader of a CEO of a company or parents, just really understanding that certain conditions are required. And I love what you said with the parents and kids. It's it's not going to be with two people superior on video games. It's going to be everybody together chasing the same thing. This whole sense of adjacency and put, letting everybody have a hand on the rudder and feel like they're contributing to where they're going as opposed to one person, I think is just an incredible advice. But I think the most powerful lesson that we you've just given us is to hyper- personalize, look local. What are the things that are working? What are the things that matter to me? What are the things I can contribute in my neighborhood versus just get lost in the clouds of all the negativity? And I think every time an individual does that, the collective energy is going to change our planet for the better. And so Sarah Stein Greenberg, thank you so much for joining me on Chatter That Matters. My pleasure, Tony. It was an honor to be here. Joining me now is Georgia Belinsky. She's the Senior Director of Brand Strategy for RBC. Georgia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me on the show today. I know that you've just embarked on a new campaign called Ideas Happen Here. Tell me how your ideas led to this campaign. At RBC, we've been working over the past five years to orient the bank around this unifying point of view, which is, as you said, ideas. We believe we're entering a really powerful age of ideas where if history repeats itself, it's the ideas that people have, that communities can rally around, that nations champion, that have the power to transform. Ideas have never been more important. We can all feel this in our day-to-day lives as we reemerge and renew and rethink the um, contracts and social contracts in our lives, but also just how to orient a day, how to get through a day and organize a day. These ideas are so important to societies and the rewiring and rewriting that's happening all over the world. So ideas are central to our brand. It's our core point of view. So it's the perfect moment in time to embrace the position, bake it into our customer experience, and ultimately build a meaningful brand off of. So how do you overcome the cynicism that's out there today that says, well, your ideas are really there to just sell me something? What's core here is we are actually in the business of helping people thrive and communities prosper. That is why we exist as an organization. And so we have an obligation, a duty to understand the ideas that drive people's lives. Yes, we have mortgages and loans and credit cards, but these products are tools for helping people achieve the ideas that they have for their lives. And that's where the richness in the conversation we lives. That's where retention lives. That's where a positive experience lives. When you can conduct a conversation with somebody across the table um, or online about what their ideas are, whether it's, you know, to make ends meet at the end of the month or a bigger idea like home ownership or retirement. These are the conversations that people are interested and engaged in. And it's the thing that people, you know, wake up thinking about every day. So So how important is it for you to take a brand that's based on sort of empathy, which ideas would be listening generously and find a way to make sure that it's not just the advertising that's making this promise, but it's actually promises happening at the branch level. Because it's great advice for my listeners who have businesses that how do you take this idea and have it breathe throughout the business? 
beyond advertising, through the experience, when you engage with RBC at every single touch point, whether you're opening the app or calling in or entering a branch, we have to live this brand position through every single touch point. And so for the Idea Bank, what does that mean when someone walks through our front door or logs onto our app or encounters an issue while they're on vacation? We have to bring ideas, listening and empathy to every single touch point through that process. And it starts with our people. So our best people already do this today where conversations are idea led and idea driven. They're not even solutions oriented off the top. They're about here's an idea to help you with what you need. And here's maybe another idea to open up the conversation around that moment that you're experiencing or maybe something that you know wasn't part of our initial conversation that emerges just through the dialogue that that happens with a client or a prospect but it's conversation based and we always say at RBC we could not be the idea bank without first having ideas people Georgia Belinsky senior director of brand strategy I can understand why you are a star to watch you have just got so much passion for your brand so thank you for joining me in chat that matters. Thanks so much, Tony. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.